Last Sunday, we began a brand new series we call Common Ground. And I brought a message that came from John 4 that is about Jesus and the Samaritan woman. If you recall that, there was no relationship whatsoever, and there were many reasons for Jesus to not engage with the Samaritan woman. And Jesus overcame every obstacle and barrier that naturally is there and that caused most of the Jewish population to never have had a conversation with that woman. And yet he found common ground with her so that he could reveal who he is in the living water of life that could be hers. And I want us as a congregation to have common ground with a lot of people where there may be significant differences between us, but we're still called to be the living water of Christ and to bring Jesus to them because Jesus is the one who changes lives. And so with that theme in mind, we've invited David Kinneman to come and share with us about some of the research and understanding the biblical truths that helps us to find common ground in areas where we have differences of thought and belief and ideology. And uh, David is the president of the Barna Group. Uh, they're an international uh, group that does research and helps us to understand where people are at and what they believe and how we can help engage with them in a more effective way. And uh, he is a uh, father of three children, and he'll share a little bit about them. Uh, a couple of them are teenagers. And for those of us who have had children who have already gone beyond the teenage year, we say, God bless you. We're excited to see you in that journey as well. So welcome to the club. Uh, but we're excited for what God is going to continue to do as he uh, works through David's life. Came down from Ventura this morning. And uh, as a reminder, we serve on the board of Biola together. So it's been a privilege to get to know him in that arena as well. Here's a short little video that helps us to in be introduced to David. And David will come up and share afterwards. sentiment in America that if you're a part of a religious group or you're a committed evangelical, you're actually part of the problem. With Good Faith, it was actually a research study that we were doing privately to try to understand why it is that Christians are so conflicted about our moment in, in culture today. What does it look like for us as people of faith to understand that's the reality? What has Christ called us to do? How are we supposed to live? How do we engage some of those difficult tensions. We study Christians all over America, and we know they're increasingly feeling pressures because of the cultural winds seem to be shifting. If you believe that you should share your faith with someone, try to convert them, that's viewed by 60% of Americans to be extremists. 42% of Americans believe that people of faith are actually part of the problem that our culture faces today. Let's face it, it is getting harder to have conversations, whether it's with your spouse, or your children, or your parents, or the people you work with. There's some challenging realities that we have to address. If we don't rise to the occasion, in 10 years, it's going to be a different kind of church. A lot of Christians are scared, you know, they're just kind of gripping on to what used to be, hoping one day we'll get back. We're not going back. The way forward is for us to understand what does faithfulness look like in the moment God's called us to, and that moment is now. This book will give you compassion, clarity, and confidence to respond to the most toxic, difficult conversations of our day. There's an opportunity in front of us for the church and for Christians to recover what it means to truly be Christian, what it means to truly be faithful. And if we take a hold of that opportunity, the days ahead for the church could be flourishing and amazing. My big hope for this project is it actually help the church understand our times, to advocate for a vision of Christianity that would make a difference in the world, to be people of good faith. Thank you. 
Well, good morning, church. Oh, we'll try that again. Good morning, guys. Good morning. That's much better. Thank you. Uh, well, hey, it is uh, so much fun to be here. And uh, as Pastor Dave said, we actually serve on the Biola board together. Uh, I, met, I met you, Dave, two years ago. It was September of 2014. Um, and so you guys interviewed uh, my wife and I, and uh, we made it on the board. Uh, and uh, so it's been a pleasure to get to know you. One of the things we've been learning a lot uh, about Dave and, and his love for the Bible, his love for uh, the people of God, his love for Southern California, his love for you, for you guys as a church. And uh, could we thank Dave, Pastor Dave for his service to us? Great, great guy. And I know as a son of a pastor, uh, how, much it, how much it means for us to acknowledge the good work that these men and women are, are pouring into us. So th- thank you, Pastor Dave. What I want to talk about today is being people of good faith, and I want to use Matthew 5, the, the, the famous section of, of Scripture where he talks about us being salt and light, Matthew 5, verse 13, as our theme verse, as, our, as our, the section of Scripture that we're going to talk the most about here. So Jesus writes this way. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your good, beautiful, inerrant word. It's authoritative in our lives. It shows us what is true about us. It tells us what is true about you. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be faithful as I teach and preach from this section of Scripture, Lord, that it would become clear how we can be salt and light. Lord, these, this, this ancient metaphor that you've used could be current in our time and in our, in our lives, as, even as we go this afternoon and this week, Lord, that you'd help us to understand what it means to be salt and light in our day. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've heard this idea of being salt and light. Maybe, maybe if you've been around a church for a while, you've, you've heard this discussion of being salt and light. Um, it's interesting, you know, Jesus is the light of the world. So we, by, G, by, by the fact that Jesus tells us that we're to be light in the world, he's actually t- telling us that we're to be like reflectors of his light, right? We're more like the moon than we are the sun, right? That we're, we're reflecting Jesus' light into the world. He also uses this idea of being salt. And you've probably heard this teaching, but we'll just r- remind you that he's saying something like that, that, that salt was a preservative. It was something that was, was used to, to keep meat, um, you, you know, s- safe. And so salt is used as a preservative in that culture. And he's saying if salt is no longer tasty, if it doesn't flavor the food any longer, what good is it? And he's asking us as, as his people to think about the kind of impact that we're having in the world. That's one of the ways we can understand this salt and light metaphor is that he's asking his people to be people of impact. And it's so interesting that at the very end of this little section, he says in the same way, in the same way as you're going out and being salt and light in the world, let your good deeds shine out for all to see that your Father, that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. Now, this is really interesting because one of the things that's, that's noticeable here is we see in Scripture this really interesting tension. On the one hand, 
we're going to be persecuted for our faith. We're going to be misunderstood for our faith. The world won't get what it means to follow Jesus. That's kind of a clear teaching of Scripture. And then on the other hand, we see that Jesus right here is telling us we're to be so faithful, we're to be so powerful, we're to be people of such impact in the world, such salt and light, that everyone, it says at the very end here, Matthew 5, 16, that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. That's, a, that's an interesting thing. Jesus himself is asking the world to hold us to a certain sort of account, right? We're not, we're not, you know, we're not measuring our faithfulness by, the, by standards of what the world thinks of us, but we should, we should care about what the world thinks about our good deeds. Now, being salt and light, what I want to talk about is, is the fact that we're living in a world that's more complicated. The, the trends that I'm going to share with you are more complex and so just a little bit more about the work that we do. Um, Barna Group is a social research company. We get a chance to work with a lot of Hollywood studios, a lot of nonprofits, a lot of ministries. Uh, in the 20 years that I've been at Barna Group, we've done more than a million interviews. So we're a polling company, and we do social research to try to understand the trends, understand what's happening in our culture. And so what I want to share with you a little bit uh, is, is how it's actually becoming more difficult for us to be salt and light. I actually, based on all the social research, based on all the things we're observing about Christianity here in the States and around the world, is that it's actually harder today than it was even 20 years ago to be salt and light. And I want to explain why that is the case. And I want to begin with this notion of these two big perceptions that the culture has of Christianity, that the, that, that the church, that Christianity is irrelevant and that it is extreme. Now, irrelevance is something that is, I think, kind of an an older problem. I think it's been a slow-growing perception in our culture that Christianity doesn't really matter. We know that a majority of people in our culture, for example, they believe that all the good works that happen, the social good, the poverty relief that happens in the United States, it would happen without people of faith, which is not true. Actually, much, in fact, a majority of what happens in our culture helping the homeless, helping the poor, uh, helping disabled individuals. I mean, there's all sorts of really good things that are happening because of people of faith. And actually, most, most Americans have no idea that's the case. Uh, you saw in the video that 42% of Americans believe that people of faith are actually part of the problem. Uh, you, you know, so, so there's a whole interesting set of perceptions that exist around the church. Um, 59% of millennials who grow up in today's church. Millennials are teenagers and young adults. Uh, 59% will end up walking away from their faith or from the church at some point. That's another example of irrelevance. So irrelevance, you might think about sort of like if you were going to draw like a trend line. And by the way, I'm a geek. I'm a stats person. So I'm kind of a, like I'm going to show you about 400 PowerPoint slides today. Um, statistics are my love language. So hang in there, right? So, so if you're going to look at this like a, a, a chart, it's going to be like this slow-growing thing, irrelevance of faith. It doesn't really matter. It's like, it's like having a conversation about the NFL. I'm not a big football fan. I know that's sort of un-American to admit, especially in the first few weeks of September. Don't like the NFL, all right? Not interested, not, not into it. That's irrele- it's irrelevant to me. It doesn't matter how much friends or my brother-in-law or bro- brother will say, come watch a game. I'm like, dude, why would I want you to watch a bunch of grown men like, like have 15 seconds of like exertion and then walk around for a couple of minutes while we go to television commercials? I just don't get it. Just a few of you can maybe get that, right? So that's irrelevance. Okay, there's one non-NFL fan here. All right, so that's irrelevance. Now, extremism is the thing that I think is, is newer. And we're seeing a rise of extremism and the perceptions of extremism. And it's interesting that we're here on the anniversary of 9-11 
because I think that, that, that the idea that religion could actually impact our lives in a, in a terrible and horrific and violent way was part of this notion that religion is actually part of the problem. It's not the solution. So irrelevance means you can ignore faith. It doesn't matter. But extremism is that religion is actually bad. We shouldn't do it. Right? Like the NFL is actually like a concussion party. Right? We shouldn't do this anymore. That's a diff- those are two separate ideas. One is like, I'm not a fan. And the other is, wh- wh- why are we doing this? Let- let's constrain it. Let's legislate it. As I said, uh, Pastor Dave and I are on the board at Biola, and many of you probably know there was recent legislation here in California, uh, SB 1146 and a couple of other ideas, and it was a a law designed to constrain religious education. It was actually like, if if you're discriminatory in your practices, that's extreme. We shouldn't have you doing that. So, so this is the new reality that we're living in. And young people, I see a, like a group of young people here, you know, like the, the world is changing. We're talking about trying to be people of good faith, how to have common ground. I, I love even sort of the setting. I love that your church is taking this on about how can, we be, how can we be people of good faith, people of impact? How can we find common ground in an increasingly difficult context? I mean, my daughter, I have 17-year-old, 15-year-old, um, two teenage girls, which is like I need a special prayer meeting just for that. Um, my oldest daughter, Emily, uh, just, we had a tiny little conflict a few months ago. And I was like, honey, I love you unconditionally. I just hope you have a teenage daughter one day, right? Like, that's my only condition. Um, and so, you know, she's on, she was on the journalism program uh, last year. And of course, at the, in the public high school in Ventura, there was many different articles around kind of LGBT community and the affirmation of that community, and we just sort of talked about it internally in our family about, like, okay, you know, she was thinking about writing um, a, an op-ed around sort of a biblical view of that, and, like, we kind of was like, that's the ultimate party foul in our culture today, to talk about a biblical view in public high school, that this is maybe not the best way for us to, to live. And so that's extreme, right? Like, we don't want to actually bring our faith into public. We, it's, like, even harder to have a common ground discussion because these issues are so complicated. And would we be, in fact, judging people? And how do we express our faith? That's just an example of some of that. Okay, so, so here's um, maybe just a story to illustrate some of this. Um, my mother-in-law, a uh, lifelong Christian, this is a, kind of about irrelevance, uh, but, you know, she— um, a few years ago, was, was at our house, and we're watching uh, the Discovery program, Discovery uh, Channel, watching a program about big cats. All right. So during a commercial break, my mother-in-law says, "You know, Dave, in my next life, I'd like to be a tiger." Now I went to Bible college, right, and and um, nothing was coming to mind about how I could respond to that. Um, <laughs> Do I have a theological discussion with her, or what do I do? But, but the, this is a true confession. The best thing that came to mind was, you know, Janice, those are beautiful animals. And that's the best I, I, I could do. We just went right back, into the, right back into the program. So the next morning, uh, my wife had already gone to bed that particular night. Uh, our kids were younger. And, uh, and, and so I told my wife, Janice was still sleeping, um, I said, Jill, your mom is a tiger mom. I told you, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so she wondered what I was talking about, and I explained that she believes apparently in reincarnation and that she wants to come back as a tiger. And um, 
So anyway, uh, her birthday comes up a few months later, and my wife goes to the store and gets her a greeting card with a photograph of a beautiful tiger waiting in a jungle pool. But the inside of the card is blank. And so I'm like, honey, what should I write in here? Like, you know, happy birthday, Janice, you're almost there. I mean, I'm kind of a troublemaker, so I mean, like, you know, go get him, tiger, earning your stripes every day. I mean, there's so many different creative possibilities that this brings. Your mom wants to be a tiger in her next life. Uh, by the way, my, my wife was sort of not completely believing that that was, you know, a little incredulous that her mom really wanted to be a tiger. And I kid you, this is like eight years ago that her mom said this to me. Uh, but she was here visiting us. She lives in Seattle. She was here visiting us during the Olympics. And another, you know, commercial came on, and there was a tiger jumping through the forest. And she's like, you know, you know, grandkids, I really want to be a tiger in my next life. And I'm just like, see, I promise she wants to be a tiger. I'm, it's the truth. All right, so, so she wants to be a tiger. What I did write in that car that day was, you know, uh, happy birthday, Janice. I hope your wildest dreams come true. <laughs> that felt like safe enough, but also me like, Ah, you want to be a tiger? All right. <laughs> All right. So here's the deal. So that's the irrelevance of faith. Here's a person who can be a lifelong Christian and still believe in reincarnation. My, my, Janice is an amazing woman. She's, she's awesome. And, you know, and she believes in reincarnation. And I still haven't had the theological discussion with her. I haven't found common ground with her on that one. Um, so irrelevance of faith is a slow-growing perception. And I just, I'm here to remind us we live in a culture that is very Christianized, but not very Christ-following. About 70% of Americans say they're Christian, but only about 7% are evangelicals. Only about 30% are practicing Christians. Really, friends, the culture is changing its mind about the Christian way of life. Uh, 60% believe that if you were to try to share your faith with somebody, that's extremist. Um, 55% said if you were to pray for a stranger in public, that would be extremist. 52% believe that if you hold to the historic teaching of Christianity that same-sex relationships are morally wrong, that's extremist. 42% said that if you were a person like Josiah who left a good-paying job to go be a missionary in in some, you know, far-off land, like that would be extremist. The culture is beginning to to define many of the normal things that we as Christians would do. Uh, And we might think about extremism as being devout. Like, like, it's really good to be devout, but our culture is like, man, you can be, like, really committed on Sunday mornings, but don't bring those religious beliefs out into the public, right? Don't, don't train your kids at a religious institution to do that. Um, and that, that's this new culture. This is this why it's harder for us to be Christian, to be people of impact, because there's greater skepticism. There's greater skepticism in our world about, about all of that. And it's not just about religion. There's, there's plenty of skepticism around a whole range of things. Um, it's actually changing the market research industry, the industry that I work in. Uh, I was reading in the industry magazine about um, a, a soft drink focus group. Uh, the pe- people were trying to help come up with some new names for some potential soft drinks. Uh, again, not a religious study at all, but, but these interviewers were coming to this group of millennials, and they said, we want to we have some good names that we could use in, in, in these actual products. And so the focus group, as it went, is like, what would be a good name for this new line of soft drinks? And the top-rated suggestion coming back from these millennials was we should call it diabetes. Wait, wait, hold on. I don't think you guys understand what it is we're trying to do here. And the millennials in the focus group are like, no, we understand exactly what it is you're trying to do here. 
right? So, so that's just this new context. Sometimes when we interview millennials who've walked away from church, we ask about their relationships with the youth pastor or the youth, the youth team, and they'll say, that person was paid to be my friend. This is this new skeptical environment that we're in where people, like, to be salt and light, it's like, well, you're just trying to market me something. So this is, this is you know, this is where we're at. All right, so let's, let's shift gears a little bit, and I want to show you some statistics. I promised you some PowerPoint slides. And so here, here are some, this is, by the way, like a presenter's dream. So I love the huge, the huge, like, that's the biggest 91% I've ever been able to show, and I like it. <laughs> Um, all right, so, so here's the percentage of people in America, U.S. adults, who say that the best way to find yourself would be to look within yourself. Uh, this just, when the data came back, I was just absolutely shocked at this. Um, people should not criticize someone's, someone else's life choices, 89%. Nine out of ten believe you shouldn't criticize someone else's life choice. By the way, the only life choice we're still allowed to criticize is people using their cell phone in the theater, right? That's the only thing that we have, like, a little mini sermon that comes on, like, please turn off your cell phone because we don't want you to bother anybody else while we're here in the Temple of Hollywood, right? All right, Um, 89%. People should not criticize someone else's life choice. This is why it's more difficult. It's the ultimate party foul to say that we believe something about the way God intends for humans to, to live and to flourish. Um, whether it's about sexuality or, or race, that the, the race, that the races should be reconciled to one another through Jesus. I mean, we, we believe all of these things that are really crazy, that are really devout, that we should pray, that we believe God would actually heal people. Um, these are really, really uh, unusual beliefs, but they matter in our life. To be people of impact, uh, they, they matter. Uh, we also learn in the research that, that 79% of Americans believe that people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. Is that even logically possible? Uh, We did a study for Josh McDowell recently looking at pornography and the pervasiveness of online pornography in our culture. And you realize that now teenagers, 13 to 18, the vast majority of teenagers, when they have conversations with their friends about pornography, they tell us in our research that is either morally neutral or morally accepting. Only one in 10 teenagers tell us that when they talk about usage of pornography, they believe it's actually a harmful practice. Think of that. See, we've thought about pornography as like this little private, our culture is sort of like, you know, it's just a private deal. It might not be good if you get addicted, but like it doesn't really matter. It doesn't harm anyone except that our attitudes about sex and sexuality are being deeply shaped by this. People have to work in this industry, right? I actually sat next to a person on a plane a few years ago. Uh, I had a middle seat heading home from Chicago. Middle seats are like, if they're, I don't believe in purgatory, but middle seats are probably the closest thing to what that would be like. And, and she sat, we sat down next to me and, and, and uh, I, she asked me what I do. I'm a, I'm a Christian author, and um, I didn't say Christian author, author first. What do you write about? Well, faith and religion, about millennials, blah, blah, blah. And so we had a good conversation about that, but then I said, what do you do? She says, well, I get naked for a living. I had no answer for that one. <laughs> but she said, you know, I don't really want to get naked anymore. And friends, I didn't even have the courage to ask, like, what category that is. I just was like, head, noise-canceling headphones. 
And uh, honestly, I sort, of, I sort of parachuted out of that conversation because it was a little too difficult. I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know if I wanted to have this conversation being stuck in the middle seat. And, and so people can't, can't just believe whatever they want as long as they don't affect society. All of our beliefs, our choices, being salt and light, being people of impact, it actually matters, the kind of life we live, friends. And so when we look at this, this is the last data I'm going to show you here, to be fulfilled in life, uh, 86% of Americans say to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things that you desire most. So here's what's happening. Our morality of culture is that it's shifting to be what, like, what is in here that you want to do and, and how is it that you feel. And, and whatever that looks like is what is probably right or wrong, right? Instead, and what has historically been true and what Scripture tells about us is that we should find ourselves through Jesus in the pages of Scripture and that we might actually have the wrong desires and that God needs to give us a new heart and new desires. I think it's very interesting that this is not an, a brand new problem. At the very end of Judges, this is in Judges 21, verse 25, it says, In those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. People do, are doing what is right in their own eyes. That's just, that's just true of our culture. And here's the dirty little secret about that, that as we did the research, we can actually in our research segment, we can cross-tabulate it's a really geeky word for saying we can shine a light on the Christian community, the practicing Christians in the culture. And do you know that a majority of practicing Christians believe those same four things that I just showed you? 76% of practicing Christians believe that you, the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. What, what, what kind of stuff are we believing? Now, I want to show you. I'm a researcher, but I'm also like an observer of culture. We you know, all of us are watching a lot of movies and music and reading books and magazines and websites, and we're thinking about what's happening. And, and just two weeks ago, I was speaking at a church in Visalia, and my daughter Annika and I, Annika and I we were looking at a, a magazine, a, like a, it was a, a, a teenage um, furniture magazine, all right? And so I just was, we were laughing about the fact that this new moral code actually shows up in, in the kind of art and the kind of things that we say about ourselves. So let me just give you a couple of examples of this, right? So how about this? How many of you have heard of the phrase YOLO, right? You only live once. And so this is one, you can buy that poster and hang that on your wall because, you know, you only live once. Now listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with that phrase, but the truth is that sometimes we've been using it as a culture to sort of justify like, you know, it doesn't really matter. You know, do whatever you want. Find yourself and, you know, you only live once. Um, how about this one? This is a throw pillow. I mean, there's no big deal. I just want it all. I want it all. I want it all, right? Like, it's pretty fun. You could put emphasis on the different, like, words there. I want it all, right? Like, like not, in, no, in no case is that a biblical idea, no matter where you put the emphasis. This is my personal favorite. All good things are wild and free. What does that even mean? <laughs> I had some mint chip ice cream last weekend that was like awesome, and it was neither wild nor free, guys. <laughs> I love the fact that all good things are wild and free, right? Like, like just live your life wild and free. Don't, don't pay attention to what any kind of external source of authority might tell you or the church or your parents. Like, no, that's not actually true. Now listen, I'm not here to judge your choice in home decorating, right? 
Remember, one of, the, one of the party fouls is that we don't want to actually judge someone else's life choices. I'm not here to judge your life choices in the terms of the posters that you have. But I am asking us to consider, and young people, I'm asking you to consider, how can we be salt and light? When so many Christians actually look the same as everyone else, when we say the same things on social media, when, we, when we're like just as angry as all the other people in our culture around, is there an election or something that's coming up this year? Like, how can we be people of impact? How can we say a different thing about what it means to live a life of meaning, about a, a, what it means to follow Jesus? So the rubber meets the road for us, and this whole project was actually, you saw in the video, <clears throat> around all the difficult conversations that we believe Christians are ha- having to have today, are, are, are being forced to, to have. And so we're having to talk about things like race. We're having to talk about things like sexuality, about life, death, and disability. Um, you know, this idea that, you, you know, when you choose to die, you know, you might have cancer, but if, you really, if you're really just done with, with life, then just choose the date of your, of, your, of your departure. This is the new moral code. It's like you're the best judge of what you really ought to do. You see, this, is, this flies deeply in the face of what we believe about Christian suffering, that through suffering, transformation happens. Uh, about life and death and disability, about sexuality, uh, about Islam, about secularism, about, about being in public schools, about uh, operating businesses, about being neighbors. I mean, these are all the difficult conversations we're having. And I, listen, I really want to applaud and encourage you as a church because I think the sermon series that you guys are going through, Common Ground, is a very, very important one. It, 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 uh, this idea of how do we think about these issues, we ought to be equipped here in our church to be thinking about what does it mean for us to be people of good faith. This is really, really hard, difficult, challenging dis- discussions that we need to have. Now, I think one of the best places in Scripture, Paul writes this in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. I think this is one of the most clear and practical examples of how we have difficult conversations. Paul says, we should live wisely among those who are not believers. So first he acknowledges that we're living in a world where not all of us are, are singing off the same song sheet, right? Let's live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. So there's a certain responsibility we have to make the most of these, to, to understand that these are a gift, these are an opportunity for us uh, to be to be very conversational, conversational, to have an effective conversation. He says, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right answer for everyone. Now, there's an interesting sort of two, two-part component to this discussion about a, a good conversation, about finding common ground. The first is you can see it. He says that we should be gracious and attractive. We should have the fruit of the Spirit as we try to find common ground. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These should define us as Christians. And at the same time, he's saying we should be effective. We should have the right answer. We should should be able to make a difference. We should be people of impact. We should be salt and light in these conversations. To find common ground, we have to be actively working at balancing that tension. Because listen, I know plenty of people, and I've I've been this person myself, who have been really good at the right answer part and not so good at the gracious and attractive part, and I've been a jerk. In my effort to find common ground, I've actually been a self-righteous Pharisee. That's the, the worst part of it, right? All right, so here's an application. In the book, we actually go through about 
15 or 16 different principles about how to have good faith. And listen, we actually, we actually go through this. We, we wrote this, Gabe Lyons and I each have teenage kids. We actually wrote this in part for our kids to try to understand what does it mean for us to live faithfully in this changing world when, when Christianity is viewed as irrelevant and extreme. But this is one of the examples, one of the ways that I think we could, we could live this out. So good faith Christians allow their marriages, our families, and our hospitality to benefit others. The context for these difficult conversations comes in the form of our hospitality. Now let me give you a story that may illustrate some of this. About 15 years ago, my brother-in-law came and visited, and he had been married a couple of times. Um, he was in the military, and he had been married a couple of times, and he came to visit us in Ventura, and he brought a friend with him, and my wife said, do you think he's gay, my brother? And I said, I can't imagine, but it turned out that was the case, that he actually came out as gay. And so for the last number of years, he lived then as, as, uh, as gay, and I had a, you know, we'd have him over occasionally, and, you know, we were always friendly and all the rest. But, but here's the thing. About three or four years ago, he, he passed away. He passed away from HIV-AIDS. It was a really um, hard situation for my, for my wife and for our family. Um, and, and, and in writing this new book and working on good faith, we were talking, there's like three chapters on same-sex attraction and how do we have these difficult conversations and, and this idea of, like, you know, kind of the, the intellectual conversation, the theological conversation, like, what do you say to somebody who is, right? But, but the Lord started to take me through this process. I share a little bit about it in the book, about this process where, you know, even though I, I, um, I knew all the right answers, and, I mean, I've written another book called Unchristian, and we had a whole chapter on how the church can be anti-homosexual, and it's, it's wrong of us to be self-righteous toward this one sin when there are many, so many other sins of, that we can, we can f- focus on. Even though I had all the right answers intellectually and theologically, the Lord began to show me that what if I had had a difficult conversation with my brother Brian, brother-in-law Brian? What if I had invited him to be a part, truly a part of our family, See, because I always held him at arm's distance, like, until you're, like, one of us, until you live like we do, until things, like, like shape up. We didn't even have that conversation, frankly, but, like, it was like, that was all my attitude towards him. But I, I began to think about this notion. I'm going to say something here that I, I want you to understand. One of our good friends who is same-sex attracted, we write about this in the book, but she says this really powerful line. She says, we can live without sex, but we cannot live without intimacy. And what if Brian was, like, really hungry for intimacy, for relationship, for hospitality, for being a part of a family, and that in all of my intellectual and theological rightness, I had missed missed the opportunity of having a difficult conversation with Brian to say, if on Saturday mornings you want to wake up and have pancakes with us, if you want to play board games with us, if you want to be, be there for movie nights on Friday, if you want to be a part of our family, like, Brian, there might be a few difficult things we'd have to talk about, but we want you, we want you to grow up as Uncle Brian for my kids. We want you to be a part of our family. You see, this is part of what I'm asking you to consider, to find common ground. It isn't just an intellectual or theological exercise. It's like, what is it going to cost us to be a part of what God is doing in the world. To be salt and light isn't just like some academic exercise. It's like, what are we going to have to shine out of us? 
What are we going to have to give up of ourselves in order to be a part of the solution that our culture, that our friends, that my brother-in-law Brian so desperately needed? So, so the Lord and his, I've asked the Lord for forgiveness about this because I feel like I missed some opportunities. These were difficult conversations I didn't have. And I feel like the Lord has forgiven me for that. And now I, I'm, I'm trying to help us understand how do we live this out? How can we be people of good faith? Let me tell you another story. Just five months ago, my family got a chance to hike the Grand Canyon. And it was really cool. We went all the way to the bottom of Phantom Ranch, about a 10-mile hike. Only some of our family made it back up. Uh, that was a joke. But um, I, was, I was not the one who made it back up. Um, no, we did. Um, so we had a really tough hike. We had made it all the way to the bottom of, of uh, Phantom Ranch. And, but the day before, my daughter had forgotten her jacket. Remember the teen girl deal? Forgotten her jacket at home. So we bought her a new, a new jacket. And she had gone off in the store to a different thing. My, my son is 12. We're standing there. And the young uh, clerk in this store right near the Grand Canyon was, went to find the right size for my daughter of the jacket. <clears throat> and she came back, and I noticed that she was really limping. And I asked her about it. She said, well, I went on a really long hike yesterday, and I, I had to come in today. I'm in a lot of pain. And I was thinking about all the research about this idea that praying for people in public is extreme. And I, I thought to myself, well... I should probably do something about this. And I, I said to her, would you mind if I prayed for you, that God might, might heal you? I just I feel, I feel badly that you're really hurting today. My boy who's 12, like his head is like eyes huge, like what are we doing here? <laughs> um, and so we prayed for just a simple prayer, and there was nothing miraculous at that moment that I could, you know, tell you about, but it was just this really moment of faithfulness about being like devout and kind of extreme. And afterwards, as we walked out, my boy was like, man, we really believe this stuff, don't we, Dad? <laughs> yeah, we do. See, our, our kids, our grandkids are waiting for us to express this belief in Jesus, a real God who wants to interact in the real world through us. What is so incredible about Jesus' words to, to us as salt and light is that he chooses us we get to be reflectors. We get to be people of impact because of what Jesus did in the world. And this is just such an incredible opportunity. And I, even though it's harder than ever to be salt and light, I actually want to remind you that I actually, that's, that's partly true. The other side of that is because it's getting darker in a culture, because so often in our church world, the church is just looking more and more like the culture, I actually think there's a great opportunity. It's actually simpler it's a, it's a more profound experience when people do this. Uh, we were sitting in a, in a studio booth, um, an editing bay, in a, a Hollywood uh, studio that you guys would recognize. We were working on a film. We were helping them understand the Christian market. And uh, one of the people in the, in the room, we were going through a, a, uh, a trailer, and, and it was a, about the life of Christ, and they were, we were kind of like helping as Christian advisors, trying to help them understand the Christian audience. And this one person who's not a believer was working on the, the messaging, and she's, she stopped us right in the middle. And she's like, wait, wait, wait. She looked at my friend Bill Denzel and I, and she was like, wait, you guys actually believe that Jesus had like no earthly father, right? Like he was like, what do you call it? Uh, and I was like, immaculate conception. She's like, yeah, yeah, that crazy thing. And uh, I was like, yeah, we actually believe that. Like, do you believe in miracles? Yeah? Well, I think that was a miracle, and it's like the defining, one of the defining miracles in human history. Oh, and we went right back to editing the, the commercial, right? 
it's extreme. So what do we do? How can we actually represent this in the world? And I just want to show you one last verse that I think helps us get a handle on this great calling, this great opportunity that we have. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now the reason I show this is because when we talk about good faith, and we talk about being people of of impact, it's really easy for us to miss the point that like maybe we're actually earning our favor with God through our good works. And, and Paul is reminding us that's never the case, right? Do you realize one of the, the best loved verses in the Bible in America today is God helps those who help themselves. A majority of people think that's a Bible verse, but that's actually something Ben Franklin said. Like we, we've, we completely have rewritten the Bible, right? According to this new moral code. But we can't boast about the good works that we, that we are doing. It's, it's God's work through us. And he reminds us, Paul reminds us of how this works. He says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And, and here is the great opportunity. I believe our culture is at a, as a profound moment where we could see a revived church. And if we could walk in faithfulness, to represent Jesus in a way. I actually think our culture is just absolutely starving, hungry for deeper answers. It, it wants us, it wants us to, to do these good works. We need to do these good works because we can actually show that God loves people and wants to restore them to his purposes. We are a masterpiece that Jesus has, has created in Christ Jesus. He's created long before for us to do these good works. What, what a cool opportunity. What a joyful opportunity we have in a culture that is so skeptical of what it means to be Christian. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the ways in which you work in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that as we've, we've immersed ourselves in understanding salt and light, that you would give us a clear picture. What are you asking us to do, Lord, to be people of hospitality, to be people who find common ground? Lord, this is not just an intellectual or easy exercise. Lord, it's a, it's a heart exercise, that you, a journey you want to take us through. Lord, would you prepare the hearts of people who might respond to your word as we do that, as we're faithful to that calling. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Dave? Let's thank David for his ministry here today. As he steps down, I want to remind you we're going to have a book that I'm going to share with you about that he has written that will really help really put this together for all of us. And uh, just, you know, I, I think you're so brave to talk about your mother-in-law like that in front of all of us. <laughs> you're like, that. wow, I'm, did I do that? I don't know. I but, have to tell you that I always hope that she doesn't watch the webcast of the church services. That we, that, you know, it's like, all right. Do you have her email address? I'll send her <laughs> no, a note. No. Let her know. No. It's your son-in-law, you know. Tigermom at gmail.com. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, if she does come back, she's going to eat you when she comes back. So, uh, Well, listen, uh, David has this terrific book. He's mentioned the others on Christian and You Lost Me, great books as well. But we have a lot of these today. As people would purchase this book here this morning, in what way can you see this book really being impactful to help carry out these things you've said? Yeah, well, I mean, this whole theme is difficult conversations. That's the, the central idea of why we create it, for our own kids, for our own families. And so, you, you know, you can't have difficult conversations alone. You need to be able to, like, think about this. You need to, like, you know, you're going to get upset at some of the things we write, not because they're wrong. Well, I mean, maybe some of them are wrong. 
uh, but because you have to sort of work through these really difficult ideas and concepts. And we, we read hundreds of books on sexuality, for example, and tried to distill that into three, three chapters. Um, and so the, our heart for the book was to try to equip Christians to have these difficult conversations. And, and as I said, for us ourselves to be changed in the journey. Uh, we wrote it for our kids, so it's an easy read. Um, but it's also one that should be really challenging for us. And for this church, you know, to be people, there's a tremendous opportunity for, for you know, this church and other churches here in Orange County uh, to, to truly represent what it means to be Christian and, and to say, no, no, these, are, these, are, these seem like crazy ideas, but they actually have more relevance today than ever. Uh, so that was our hope in writing it. All right. Well, it's outstanding. I've read it, and it's very good. We recommend it highly. It really does uh, shape together and give a sense of direction for Colossians 4 that you mentioned, Ephesians 2, and helps us to be able to live that out. So thank you for putting that together. Let's thank him one Thanks more time. Thank you for being Appreciate with us today. I want to give you a chance to respond and uh, engage a little bit more on this. We have a various stations that are here. It's all about communion, taking the bread and the cup. The bread symbolizes the body of Jesus, the, the cup, the blood of Jesus Christ. It's all symbolic of the reality that Christ is in us, and we want to live that life and live that faith for his sake. And so as we live that life the way Jesus lived that life, it's our opportunity to really express the faith that we have in, a, in an attractive way, as Colossians says. We, we desire that, to find that common ground to be able to engage with folks. So we're going to be able to share together in worship and have that experience to, to know him and to walk with him and to celebrate who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so we invite you to come up as you and share at the various tables that are around the room and to be able to share in that experience of communion. And also the offering is there. We offer you an opportunity to give to the work and calling the mission that God has placed upon our hearts as well. So let me pray for us as we worship together now. Father, help us as we gather before you again in this uh, opportunity around the communion table, around the praise and worship of your name. And, uh, Father, even begin to fully understand and sort of digest the things that we have heard and how we should be that light and that salt for Jesus Christ. Father, challenge us to that. Give us, give us the boldness to be able to live that life and yet that winsome, attractive character of Jesus that others would be drawn to him through us. Father, thank you for these opportunities as we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.